Essentially, what that means is there's a giant pile of stuff in a quarter um, that is going to be a novel on Sunday. And I'm a novelist in the way that you have an uncle who's like, I'm building a boat in the backyard. And you're like, okay, you're building a boat in the backyard. That's fine. So, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. I've published some short stories, some poetry um, quite a ways back and doing a day job teaching in the meantime, as long as that hangs out. And yes, maybe eventually we'll get that boat up and running and out on the water someday. We're all that uncle, though, you know, if you have friends that are like non-writers and you're like, yeah, I'm working on a book of poetry. They're like, oh, that's nice. That's nice. Book of poetry, gonna, building a boat in your backyard. <laughs> I was going to ask that question of like when you're talking to somebody who's not familiar with this kind of like world that we're in and you say like, oh, I'm working on poems, let's just say I'm working on some poems. Um, how do you explain that to somebody who's like? thinks of like an adolescent writing in their uh, marble composition book. How do you, do you attempt? Do you just bypass it? What's your strategy? Um, well, I tell them not to be afraid, first of all, because I think education when you're young sort of uh, instills a fear of poetry, right? I mean, we all had that high school class where it was like, read this poem and then tell us what it's about. I had I had an episode in, in my advanced English class when I was a senior in high school where we were supposed to memorize a poem and then we were supposed to get up in front of the class and stand at this lectern and tell everyone what's it about. And my teacher actually wrote me a note at the end of it because we got notes and it just said, did you even really understand the poem with three question marks at the end? And so I didn't write poetry for 10 years. I was like, no, nah, man, I'm never going to understand poetry. I'm not supposed to write about it. So um I'll usually ask, I'll say, you know, if you look at my poetry or if you want to read my poetry and you're coming into it and you've never touched poetry at all, um, what I want you to know is however you react or however you read it is totally normal. And you're not supposed to break it down for me or explicate it. The poem is not a thing that's going to attack you. Um, it's an arrangement of words as, as visual art and sonic art. And that's how you should take it, right? Just like you're looking at a painting. You don't have to tell everybody what the painting's about to appreciate one, right? Imagine. Yeah, that's a good explanation. I've, I've been asked that question a couple of times um, because I have a lot of friends that um, don't, that are uncomfortable with poetry. And I was actually going to, when we get on to later on in this podcast, I have a poem that I can share by the same poet that I'm going to read later that's about that same question. And it's... Um, mm -hmm. It's about going to a dinner party and someone saying that reading poems is torture. It's one of my favorite poems. So remind me reading and I'll them bring or that writing up. them is torture. I, I would agree with one, but not the other. <laughs> I mean, I think they can both be a type of torture, but like an exquisite torture because poets are all tortured on the inside, right? So, I mean, I don't know. Maybe we're all we're all gluttons for punishment. Billy Collins has a really fun poem. I think it's called Introduction to Poetry. And the whole gimmick is he's uh, describing how his students perceive poetry and he uses a bunch of fun flighty metaphors, but it ends with the students tying the poem to a chair and beating it interrogation style to find out what it means. So they're literally torturing the poem. And uh, yeah, so that's clearly. Uh, yeah, I remember that poem. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that's what we think we're supposed to do with poetry because 
there's, I think we're taught to see all these. I remember being taught that you have to look at poetry through different lenses. Like we read William Carlos Williams, The Red Wheelbarrow. And I had a teacher that was like, what do you think red means in this? Do you think it means communism? Are you looking at it through a Marxist perspective? And I'm like, someone left the red wheelbarrow out in the rain next to the white chickens. There's dew on it. I don't actually think that that poem is about much more than that. Um, but oh. I was taught to think that it was. And so were a lot of other kids. So, I mean, you go into, you go to college, right? And there's not a whole lot of poetry courses offered in college if you're in any degree outside of creative writing. So, yeah, I mean, half the struggle in um, trying to introduce people to poetry is to make them feel that it's accessible and that they're not going to be wrong in any way by reading it and having any type of interpretation. And that's hard, you know, it's, it's hard to get people past that, that mental boundary that they have. Well, that's what we're here to do, right, Chris? Yep. Um, so yeah, thanks for that little bit. Um, yeah, we'll jump into the poems we got for today and a couple of questions. Uh, as far as introduction, me and Chris and Rachel, Lauren Myers, do you want to give a little bit of your intro, who you are and why you're here? Sure. Chris, you want to go first? Yeah, sounds good. I'm uh, still the Ed McMahon to the uh, head of the show here. And uh, while I teach during the day, play music on the weekends and have a, a giant stack of almost novel rotting in a corner. Uh, yeah, like Aaron said, my name is Rachel Lauren Myers. Um, I'm a practicing poet and short story writer. I'm from Reno, Nevada. I'm also a reader for Wild Roof Journal, so specifically for poetry, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. Um, poetry is definitely the great love of my life, and I'm currently working on putting together a chapbook. Nice. So we have uh, one selection from our most recent issue, issue 15 from July, uh, which uh, Rachel selected, and the writer is Evelyn Lee, the name of the poem, I read a lot. Want to read the poem? It's not yeah, super long, I would love right? to. I, it's I'll not super it as well, long, but right? we can do the audio, just reading it through. And then, Definitely, um, I, I, I would love to read this poem. And I do awesome. want to preface my reading by saying that, you know, the first time I read this poem, I was like, wow, it's a real stunner. Um, it reminded me a little bit of a, a poem I'm thinking of right now, We Lived Happily During the War, um, which which people were circulating a lot at the beginning of the war in Ukraine. So I think this, I think this poem is really apt to the moment. Um, okay, I read a lot about war. Why? Blame the journalists. We are living a dead way of seeing. Can I intrude on your interruption to say conflict is an orphan factory? Let's exchange the gift of trespass under a blooming arbor between cascades of empty bird feeders. Can I help you? Oh, it's you. Goodbye. Time passes into history at the tidal mouth of a river we do not cross as the sun rises on the horizon of our choices. Death brings me here to talk to you. None of us will get out of here alive. The war will leave us where it finds us. Birds will jump, fish, fly. A leaf will roll over on its stem to put its back to face the wind. I don't know what to say. Yeah, so um, 
part of the things that strike me about this poem is I'm, I'm a big fan of the way it's structured. It's structured in couplets. So for listeners, if they want to pull it up, um, it's really gorgeous. And I especially like where the line breaks are. Um, there's a couple of really pleasing sonic moments here. Um, one of my favorites is none of us will get out of here alive. The war will leave us where it finds us. Birds will jump, fish fly. Um, that's gorgeous. That's a gorgeous little, and I, I separate it into sort of like a triplet in my head, right? It's like three separate sentences, but it's so pleasing. And it's it offers a lot of gravity. And so I'm struck by a lot of this. Um, and the the idea, right? Can I intrude on your interruption to say conflict is an orphan factory? It's a powerful statement. I think a lot of times in the United States, we don't understand the magnitude of war, of what people in countries that are war-torn and conflicted go through. I think this poet really, really hits the nail on the head with it. And I, I really just thought it was lovely. For me, what I liked most about it was I felt like kind of went beyond the maybe like the current event type of entry point. Obviously not specific to any like event, but it you know has a feel of like obviously things that are on people's minds, especially at the time. So it's not super specific into what it's talking about, but I felt like it went beyond just like kind of that surface level. Um, to say something a little bit more about like not even just society, but uh, like more of a more general um, transcendent kind of message or commentary or something like that. When I was taking notes on this one, the first thing I wrote down was anti-preachy. I, I liked that it I, I immediately could feel we're, we're not going to get a lecture. We're not going to get a uh, uh, kind of a diatribe. This is going to be uh, difficult because you can kind of feel the writer or at least the narrator struggling with these huge, you know, moral problems. But I, the, the first two lines in particular, I read a lot about war. Why blame the journalists for living a dead way of seeing? Um, and Im immediately not only captured my attention, but the blame the journalist line, it feels maybe uh, almost a little too easy, except that, for the last two years, I've actually been trying to like bone up on studying politics and actually trying to educate myself, which everybody says, but um, I'll go ahead and get a little political. Two years ago, the peak of COVID, I had a friend who was wildly leaning right wing. Like he was, grew up with me, good friend, uh, bassist that I play with all the time. And he was going not only from Democrat to Republican, he was like looking over the edge of full QAnon. And so I, I made it a point to uh, friendship is most important, but I would like to engage him in conversations about politics. And one of the things that we were able to come together on was figuring out how journalism will create narratives, particularly around war. And we both like Orwell and we both know that uh, war is something that can be sensationalized, can be turned into clickbait and therefore Here's all the stuff we know about Ukraine. Here's all the stuff we're not hearing about Syria uh, or uh, various other conflicts that might be equal or greater in importance. So the idea that she kind of uh, launches this suspicion of journalism puts a nice glow on the rest of the poem. But we get to the abstract stuff towards the end. Death brings me here to talk to you. Uh, none of us will get out of here alive. I take those more seriously and uh, 
the abstraction doesn't seem as highfalutin because of that initial setup, which kind of puts me in the trenches a little bit. Uh, so yeah, I, I loved it. I love the the kind of posture that it's coming from, and it gets philosophical without being preachy, and that's pretty tough. Yeah, that's what I was getting at. I think it kind of it, it gets it gets somewhere, but it kind of in a weird way treads lightly, even though the opening is like kind of so direct, um, which is kind of a cool balance, I think. I also really like in this poem, you know, something I was really drawn to, and it is like the world continues on without you, right? Humans affect the world and the way that we look at it. We are living a dead way of seeing, right? We're looking at a journalist interpretation. And to your point, Chris, it's the same as with school shootings, right? I mean, journalists tend to sensationalize school shootings. And there's been a lot of backlash about like, hey, let's not put shooters' names in the media. Let's make sure that we're responsibly reporting this so that it doesn't become a wider spread phenomenon and we make it worse. So there's a lot of responsibility to being a journalist. So it, I, I really like the directness of blame the journalists, right? Um, but another thing, going back to like the world will move on, right? Birds will jump, fish fly. A leaf will roll over on its stem to put its back to face the wind. I don't know what to say. Like, I don't know what to say about this. There's a lot of war, but somehow the earth keeps turning. Somehow we're all still here. We're all headed towards death. Death brings me here to talk to you. We're all gonna end up in the same place. None of us will get out of here alive. Um, so it's it's deceptively powerful, right? The first time you read it, it's like, oh, this is about war. And the second time you read it, you're like, well, that's a really simplistic way to view it. And, you know, I I think about like a lot of war poems, like W.S. Merwin wrote a lot of poetry about his experiences. And, you know, he, he had a lot of powerful lines like that. Like, I have no shadow but myself. And that's what I think of. Like, I don't know what to say. I have no shadow but myself. Like, what else is there to say? Maybe what is most important is what exists and what's on set here. There's something kind of sneaky, I think, going on at the very end. Uh, the war will leave us where it finds us. Birds will jump, fish fly. I love that line exactly the way you did, Rachel. But there's, uh, of course, birds should be flying and fish should be jumping. And then when you get to the leaf rolling over on a stem, puts its back to face the wind, we're getting these deliberate kind of inversion little jujitsu moves. Um, so back to fit. How can you put your back to something that you should be facing? And uh, I'm not sure what to do with it, but I like it. I think there's kind of a, a sneaky little um, sidestep coming in at the end there and it kind of um, pulls me in a little bit deeper in terms of trying to figure out the juxtaposition factor. Well, and there's a little bit of that sneakiness in the center too, right? It's like, um, let's exchange trespasses under a blooming arbor between cascades of empty bird feeders. Can I help you? Oh, it's you. Goodbye. And it's like, what's that about right in the middle? But somehow it works for me. Um, it's almost like the speaker is turning towards me. Um, it feels a little bit like um, in, a, in a workshop I, I studied with Tess Taylor and she went over the Volta pretty seriously about that turn in a poem where it brings you about. And sometimes I think a really great Volta can be when, when the poet turns and is almost addressing you. And I don't know if the poet is addressing me or if they're addressing some other um, in talking about the war. Um, it's not clear to me, but I like, I like that turn here. Can I help you? Oh, it's you. Goodbye. Time passes into history. That's, a great couple of lines and it's a great little turn in this poem and it builds momentum for me where like um we have these little short 
stints like, can I help you? Oh, it's you. Goodbye. And then time passes into history at the tidal mouth of a river we do not cross as the sun rises on the horizon of our choices. So it's it's both it's both pleasing sonically for me to hear it when I read it out loud. And it's also really beautiful on the page. Um, so I really hope our listeners go pull this poem up and read it for themselves and read it out loud to themselves because it is delicious. Um, given the subject matter, maybe I'm not supposed to say delicious, but nevertheless, it is. <laughs> that's fair. Oh, 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 yeah, that's great. I think that's, um, I think that nails it for me. Yeah. So Evelyn Lee, I read a lot. Do you want to throw a question out? On Instagram, when I do these or the day before, I'll usually ask something or post something to get a response. Um, so one of the questions that came through, I'll get your thoughts on it, just what, uh, what comes to mind. Uh, this question was from Anna. Uh, what keeps you going on a difficult writing day? That's kind of, I thought that was an interesting one just because it's, you know, it's kind of so ever-present, maybe. Everybody's had it. Maybe more than easy writing days. So any thoughts, tips, strategies, thought experiments? I'm going to let my stacked up novelist friend go first. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> now, uh, so I'm a bad case study because there have been a lot of times where, um, the crushing weight of failure and inadequacy is what wins the day, and that becomes the day. So not the first person you'd want to go to in terms of output. How do you push yourself through the wall when you hit it? What I've found is a couple of sneaky workarounds. Um, one is what I call uh, the nonsense dialogue. It's sort of, it, it, you just free associate, you write, and you kind of try to ironically write I believe the term is something like default mode network, the voice that's always in your head, uh, the narrative that's always going on constantly, and you start actually jotting that down. In other words, any self-defeating talk or discouragement or frustration or um, angst, uh, you, you try to write that down and you get a little distance from it. And you, maybe you deliberate, because I'm me, I try to make it a little funny or a little ironic or a little acerbic or a little biting. And so kind of trying to mainline the negative self-talk and get a little ironic distance from it, make it a little funny, a little uh, self-deprecating, sometimes that'll help because that's kind of the voice that some of the things that I've written that I really like is actually in that voice. And uh, one of the people who I would say is a weird inspiration for me in that tone is Anthony Bourdain. I've been kind of coming back to him recently. I hated him in college when I had to read Kitchen Confidential for a grad class called Literary Nonfiction. And oh, are you kidding me? I love Kitchen Confidential. Well, this is there's a there's an arc there's an arc here. I hated it at the time. Clearly, in retrospect, it was jealousy because he was doing all the things I wanted to do well, and so my <laughs> hatred. Well, he's just this bad boy chef bitching about food and the difficulties, the pirates in the kitchen. And I still had PTSD from uh, working as a waiter. So I knew what the cacophony in the kitchen was. And yeah, it took me about four years and I came full circle. So Anthony Bourdain is now one of my literary heroes in terms of personality, voice, that acerbic kind of self-deprecating, but also um, clearly he's working through stuff in his writing. 
And so, yeah, finding finding inspiration in people that you like, like Anthony Bourdain, but also kind of figuring out that the self-defeating voice can actually be something that could lead to output, because I think he did that all the time. We have that in common. Anthony Bourdain is a hero of mine. Um, I grew up watching No Reservations and A Cook's Tour before that and Red Kitchen Confidential in my 20s. And I remember laughing out loud during some of the scenes. You know, there's a there's a famous character he has um, in these books who's a real person, Adam, no last name unknown or Adam, last name unknown, who famously makes amazing bread. He's a bread savant. He's also a drug addict and he's crazy. And so I encourage anybody to pick up this book um, for a long time before he passed away. It was out of print, which was which was really sad. But now you can find it anywhere. And it's it's amazing. It's a great depiction of the underbelly of working in restaurants. And, yeah, it has a lot of that self-deprecating tone that I think he he, he did so well, you know, um, and I, I think it takes a lot of skill to be as funny as he is when dealing with some of the things he talks about, like heroin addiction and, you know, people doing meth and, you know, that ordering food, really. He even describes how to order food for a restaurant. I mean, it's, it's, you, you educate yourself a lot, but also again, yeah, one of the funniest books I've ever read. So that's amazing for me. I suppose every day is a difficult writing day. Um, but I, taught myself to think of it as um, allowing yourself to write poorly. And there's a there's a famous book by Anne Lamott, Bird by Bird, that I'm sure a lot of people had to read like the freshman year in English, right? Um, and the first chapter is called Shitty First Drafts. And it's just about allowing yourself to write something that's not very good. And I started to think about it in terms of like, you know, my, one of my favorite animals is the raccoon. And so I describe myself as someone who writes down a bunch of trash and then I sift through it like a raccoon looking for the good little niblets that I want to eat, that I want to use. And so every single day I just take out the trash, right? If I'm having trouble writing, then why am I having trouble writing? Am I feeling insecure about what I'm going to say? No one can read what I'm going to say. And there's, I have reams of gibberish all over my computer and all over notebooks right in front of me. 99% of what I put down is completely unusable and it doesn't make any sense. And I think that's fine because I know that that's just my trash that I took out and maybe I'll sift through it later. Or maybe if I clear all the trash out of my head, then something, something good will come and the poem will arrive. Um, but either way, it really is, it's, you know, there's, there's a million different ways to say it, but most everyone I've ever spoken to that was a poet or writer told me that you just push through, right? You just keep writing whether or not you want to, you make sure you stick to a routine, whatever routine works for you. doesn't mean you have to write every day. It certainly doesn't mean you have to write well every day, but remove the pressure from yourself and just write. That's good. Uh, my favorite animal is a seagull. So we have like some kind of trash yeah, we like it. thing in common. Chris, so, possums. Uh, I know. Uh, <laughs> cool. Oh, I, I could give it a possum for sure. I was sloth would normally be my go-to. Uh, uh, <laughs> goodness, uh, sloth the slow motion determination I like. Yeah, those. Yeah, both good ideas. So, kind of, Chris is like start with like a, a, a voice, a dialogue, a, a point of view. Um. Rachel's like just volume, get it out, right? Bad. Make trash, right? Bad. <laughs> Make trash. For me, I, 
the thing I kind of I've been going back to is just like picking up the notebook, like a physical thing. And so even if it is um, instead of maybe Chris's method of like writing down internal dialogue, my fallback has been like listening to something and just like picking out, you know, words or phrases that come through listening. Um, so if I'm if I'm listening to a podcast. Just have the notebook, write down, try not to really filter too much, but you're just, you know, you're kind of just doing it naturally or intuitively. And just, you know, so what gets me caught up um, is kind of the, the pressure to like create something or to like make something up or to, I'm just not good at that. Like, what am I, I don't, I'm not, not thinking anything good right now. So how am I going to write anything down? So that just kind of short circuits that. I'm like, okay, I'm just writing down what I'm hearing. And sometimes that you can, get somewhere with it sometimes it takes you somewhere else and sometimes you can actually you know piece things together that work naturally together but they align in a certain way so i think that works but it does like hook up to the voice thing i think that's like a really important because you're hearing somebody else's voice maybe and that's a nice uh a nice break sometimes that's good. I mean, I, I wrote that down too, because like the use of external prompts, I didn't mention it, but I, I keep little lists on my phone. And one of them is just weird things people say to me that I write down and I say, I like that. And I just published a poem that somebody just said something to me in a workshop. And I was like, I like that. Can I have that? I'm gonna write that down. Can I, can I steal that? And two years later, the poem came out somewhere. So you never know where, where the idea will find you. So when I'm really having trouble writing, I also pull up my phone and I just pull up like, what did my friend say to me? And then I use that as a prompt. Like, this is the first line of this poem, write a poem off of this and just generate something. And again, you're allowed to write poorly. Um, you know, how else do you get better? But yeah, I love that. Also listening. How about, um, Rachel, you, you, I asked you to pick a, a poem outside of the Wild Roof issue or something that we published and you made a selection the poet keith kafka and the poem is called monument so yes. i'll also post a link to, to uh, if, it, if it's on the, the website you'll see a link to it um but yeah it is kind of relatively short too so why not let's read it um yes and then you could you could tell us like about like why you picked it or what this kind of like what your connection to it is. Sure. And I'd also like to cheat because we were talking about in the beginning how we introduce people to poetry. So I have a second poem by this poet, if we end up having time, about talking to people who maybe are intimidated by poetry. Um, but yeah, this is called Monument. It's from the book Count Four. It came out, um, I think, in 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic. So um, a lot of people didn't hear about this book, but it's excellent. So I also want to plug it. Um, count four by Keith Kafka. The poem is Monument. Okay. Since I've spent this hour perfecting a controlled arc of spray paint to enclose the giant red A scrawled across the clapboard siding of someone's vacation home, I decide it's a good idea to run when the police appear in response to the Rattan patio bonfire I've started with a blowtorch of hairspray and lighters stolen from my mother's purse. A woman who worked the late shift, who wasn't really sure where her kid was most of the time. And even when I fold my body, creep vine flat along the banks of the Bristol River, I am caught, 
zip-tied and foot-stuffed into the cubby-holed backseat of an idling Crown Vic, my wrist shredding more with each strange shout through the window at the chubby rookie left behind to watch me. Even then I knew he was the boy picked last, yet secretly too sure of himself in a body growing faster than the small world it governs. He was like the dinosaur sponges I bought at the market to ripen in kitchen bowls until they capped their potential by sucking dry or by sucking every container dry. I swear I can see that water on his cheeks as he pulls me from the car by my neck, getting bigger and taller and thicker in front of me, my compliant frame absorbing each swing of his nightstick until finally I too start to take shape. So this is a poem that is very different from say the Wild Roof Journal aesthetic, right? Um, and that's part of why I've picked it. I, one thing I really like about this poet in general is that um, for people who don't know, and it would be in his bio, I think on the website where it's linked, uh, he formally toured in punk and hardcore bands, right? And obviously they had a little bit of misspent youth. And I grew up the first 10 years of my life in a neighborhood that's also got a lot of misspent youth, right? Like um, I also had a mother who worked two jobs and wasn't always aware where her kid was. I've certainly sat in the back of a Crown Vic with handcuffs on because I was caught vandalizing a house when I was 15. Um, so this is an experience that speaks to me both as a personal anecdote, but also because you don't see a lot of poetry like this, right? Um, contemporary poetry that I'm reading a lot has um, really eloquent ways of describing nature, the intersection of humans and nature. Um, we find new ways to describe a sunset. We talk about grief and loss and sorrow and trauma birth and life, but uh, there's very little that I see personally about mischief. Um, and it's more than that. This isn't just a poem about mischief. It's also a poem that talks about masculinity in a way that I really like. Um, I ponder gender roles a lot um, because I find myself to be someone who doesn't inhabit a traditional gender role and I reject um, femininity in a lot of ways. But I do know that when I was handcuffed and sitting in the back of a crown Vic, that I cried and bawled like a little girl and suddenly decided to inhabit that gender role very well because I thought it might help me. And in this way, right, I mean, we have, we both have the masculinity of, of the speaker here who was committing the crime and was arrested, right? And then we have the chubby rookie who, I don't know about you, but oftentimes in reading, I associate chubby with young. And so you've got this young rookie who pulls him out of the car by his neck and gets bigger and taller and thicker as he beats him. And then as he's being beaten, this poet is starting to take shape. And I really think that's, that's the most unique portrayal I've seen of like toxic masculinity, right? Um, in a poem, and I really love it. Thank you for letting me bring it today. The first thing I wrote down when I read this was A, a for anarchy, question mark, and then something about funk. And it, it had that feel for me. And my initial response with a poem like this in terms of the storyline, if I just look at this as a little scene in the movie, would be if I was the director making this in a little like a music video, the cop, the chubby cop would be the embodiment of the toxic masculinity because he's insecure and he's, you know, clearly a cop because he's dealing with shit that he didn't deal with in terms of needing to overcompensate. But I had a weird little sliver of sympathy for him, even though he's beating the guy. But I also had sympathy for the 
the narrator, because he's so perfectly, beautifully articulating this moment, which I also can relate to in terms of the smaller version of the arc. And in my case, I didn't get fully handcuffed. It was a cold night. And when they threw me up against the hood of the cop car, I remember thinking, ah, oh, well, at least the hood of the cop car is warm while they're patting me down. <laughs> and yeah, that was like, oh, these little tiny moments just get kind of locked in. And so in terms of, well, let me pose this as a question, in terms of toxic masculinity, um, how would you characterize the toxic masculinity in this? Like, is it the narrator? Is it the cop? Where, where is the toxicity? Because I, I kind of relate to both of them. Right. And it's almost like because he's the boy picked last, right? The chubby rookie is the boy picked last. And he looks at this boy and, you know, especially when we're younger, the kids who do the vandalism, the the punk kids, you know, they're cool in a way, right? Like, that's also part of the masculinity. Like, we need to run around. We need to run away from the cops. You need to take your beating because that's manly. But also, it's manly to give a beating, right? Um, And he's overcompensating because... He's a rookie. He's brand new. And and yet he's secretly too sure of himself in a body growing faster than the small world it governs, right? His power is small, but he's overconfident. And so he beats him with his nightstick, which is, I mean, a huge overreaction for someone spray painting an A and yeah, starting a bonfire. Um, you know, that's naughty, but it sounds like this poet or this speaker is a kid, right? So, and this rookie is just barely away from being a kid himself. And one thing I really think about too, um, well, I'll, I'll finish with the toxic masculinity, right? Like the sense that if you're a man and you're manly, then you're supposed to fight. And there's a couple of poems in this collection that, that deal with masculinity in a big way. And another one, um, he gets in his first fight and I think he is looking at himself in the mirror and he mouths the word unstoppable. He's unstoppable. And so it's that sense that like, you're supposed to fight. You're supposed to get into fights. You're supposed to um, be daring and brave. And, you know, I think part of it is just like, I, I keep returning to getting bigger and taller and thicker in front of me. And then his compliant frame absorbing the swings of the nightstick. Um, and also, you know, I have to mention that the dinosaur sponges, like I haven't thought about that since I was little. And I think we all had those, right? You like buy them and they were like in line at the grocery store. They were right by the register. They're super lame. They're just like this big, you put them in a bowl and they absorb the water and they're large. And that's the only thing they do. It's not that cool of a toy, but the thought like, you know, until they capped their potential by sucking every container dry. And I think about like, you know, how if, if if you have this need to be masculine in the way that this, this rookie is, right? Then you're capping your potential. And he says, I swear, I can see the water on his cheeks. And I, that's that's unique and articulate. And I would never consider to look at something in that way. It was literally a picture of the dinosaur sponges at the top, which I didn't register. I just thought, oh, oh smash right there. Right there. And, oh my and God. When I, to, when I got to dinosaur sponges, I said, I don't know what that is. That must be some obscure metaphor that I don't know. So I, I, you know, went to Google and I said, oh shit, I had those when I was a kid. So what he did was he he plucked something out of my four-year-old brain and just like dropped it in front of me. That's, that's a baller move. Yeah. yeah, So you get a a gut punch at the end when you basically see the two people coming into their own. They're both being formed into who they're going to be. One guy doing the beating, the other guy getting a beating. Um, right. It's almost like yeah, this, uh, it's like this toxic coming of age, right? 
Um, right. He's starting to take shape and he's losing that dinosaur sponge mentality. And instead he's becoming a man, right? This is how you become a man. You get, get the crap kicked out of you by a cop, you know? I mean, um, but another reason that I like this poem is that there's, there's a sense of otherness to it, a sense of being an outsider who's spray painting the A, which yeah, I assume was anarchy too, like punk symbol. And of course that's like the biggest sense of otherness Oftentimes, that's why we're drawn to the punk movement or the hardcore movement is because we feel us, we feel like we're outsiders in a way, and we don't feel like we fit into society. And I mean, I, I was really taken by that, by the whole thing. And the poem itself, um, if our listeners pull it up and read it, it's, I really like the form here. It's a stickic. It's all one continuous stanza. Um, and you sort of tumble through it because um, they're short lines. So it's like, since I've spent line break, this hour perfecting line break, a controlled arc. Um, and so you sort of tumble through it and it builds momentum until the final moment. And I think that's also something that this poem does well. It really does a great job of building momentum and then releasing that momentum and leaving you with a final thought that he's finally taking shape. I will attempt an idea here, but I don't, because I love how the, the it is like a narrative, it's a narrative poem. I love that. Um, and always when I read a good one like this, it's like more, more, more poems like this, because it's so in one way easy to grasp, but there are it is, you know, such depth to it and kind of such there's such a perception there. But is there something going on with like resistance and creativity? Because I, I I have the feeling that there is this, there's like a there's like some kind of awareness of connection here. Um, cause on, there's like the surface layer of the resistance and sides and even just the active vandalism is on, you know, it's, it's a targeted act, um, we'll just call it a, a vacation, someone's vacation home. Um, so there's this idea of like us against them, but what I really liked about it is like this perception comes through, uh, this awareness of the connection between these things that seem like opposites. So that's why the, the taking shape thing is super interesting because that, that to me that shows the awareness of like, well, this is, you know, this is kind of like my generative development or process um, as a person, as a creative person, maybe if that's taking it too far. So I like that awareness of connection and it's not just cops, bad guys beat me and, you know, I'm justified and they're the, you know, the bad guy. So that was just kind of something I was thinking of as I was reading it for the you know first time and going over it. Well, and the other thing that I like about this poem is going back to what we were discussing in the beginning, right? Like how do you approach people with poetry and make it engaging and get them to engage with it if they don't have a history of reading poetry and they've never been introduced to it? This poem has a clear narrative and it's easy to read and it's easy to understand. I mean, any one of us, there's there's a lot to interpret here, right? Not everybody is gonna is going to read this poem and break it down into little bits and talk about the form, but you can follow this story. You can follow that this rookie was overcompensating and that this um this young punk was getting the crap kicked out of him. And like the references to childhood, especially for millennials, to the the like the dinosaur-shaped sponge, right? These are all things that that make this poem easily accessible. And I think it also uses really accessible language, but it isn't, it isn't defined by simplicity either. Um, but 
that is to say that I think direct and simple language is something that can be masterful if it's used well, um, because it makes it so accessible. And that's what I think is really good here. And again, it's just, you know, personally, I relate to this poem. I want to see more poetry like this out in the world because I want to see um, poetry of all different perspectives. And I don't see a lot in in the sense of like, you know, the vein that I grew up. So um, personally, it speaks to me a great deal. Um, I always felt like, you know, I was I was overcompensating when I was young. I was vandalizing. I was running around because I just wanted to express this like unnamed rage that I had. Right. Um, I'm different and I want to show it somehow. But also I'm inhibited by all of these roles that I'm supposed to inhabit. Um, and even when I get caught committing crimes, there's a there's a certain role that I play. But yeah, that's uh, now I'm getting a little abstract here. But yes, it's um, I, I think this poem is great in its accessibility, too. Did you have, you mentioned like a, a poem about explaining poetry or ac accessing poetry. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, what are you thinking? Yes. Yeah, this is a short poem if you guys are interested. It's, um, I'm pulling it up on my phone, but it's also from this same collection, um, Count Four. I'm a big fan of this poet's work, but um, it's called At Dinner When Someone Says Reading Poems is Torture. And I share it quite often on social media and it's maybe like, what, not even 30 lines. Are you interested? Yay? Uh, go for it. All right, this is a closing poem to Count Four by Keith Kopka. It's called At Dinner When Someone Says Reading Poems is Torture. Tell them how the ancient Greeks invented the bronze bowl. The condemned were locked in its stomach. Then a fire under the statue heated the metal until they roasted alive. It bucked while they cooked and sound apparatus turned screams into snorts. Imagine Perillos of Athens pitching his idea to the tyrant king, planning each stage of diabolical casting, the months taken to chisel horns and nostrils wide enough for the perfect amount of agony to trickle out. When he finished, Perillos said to the tyrant, screams will come to you through the pipes as the tenderest, most pathetic, most melodious of bellowings. Horrified by, at the end by his imaginings, the tyrant locked Perillos in his own creation and fastened handsome jewelry from his bones. So this is a different take on, uh, you know, that, that classic thing where you approach someone and they say, what do you do? And you say, I'm a poet. And they go, oh, God, poetry is terrible for me. I hate it so much. It's torture. Reading poems is so hard. Right. And of course, I, I do have that epithetic perspective where I'm like, well, high school probably ruined you for poetry. But the other part of me is like, I just want to describe the bronze bowl to you right now because this is what I love. And this is what you said back to me. Um, and it's funny. It's very funny. It's a great closing to a collection. And the title really leads into the joke, which is like, okay, well, um, would you like to know the history of the bronze bowl that Perillos of Athens built? And then he was so horrified by it, he locked the creator inside it. It's funny. Fantastic. That's the kind of... Uh acerbic level of kind of a scalpel level slicing that I love uh, in poetry, particularly it's self-aware without being self-indulgent. Very good. <laughs> yes, I think I, I can find a copy to link this to you, Aaron, after we finish the podcast too, since I just brought oh, it that'd in. Be good. Yeah. On the fly, I was just like, you know, there's another poem because I, I, I almost always choose that poem to read to people because I like how funny it is, but I, you know, for the podcast, I wanted to bring something that um, 
really showed a little bit more like the depth and range of what this poet writes about. But again, like, I think that's an excellent closing poem to a book. I think it makes a statement. I think it's hilarious. Um, I also, again, like the form, it's all one long stanza. Um, and just the last line, fashioned handsome jewelry from his bones, right? He's horrified by it. He locks him in it. And then he tortures him anyways. And then he takes his bones and makes jewelry out of it. So why are you so horrified by the bronze bowl? Um, there's a lot to find funny about it. But also, yes, I mean, you know, a lot of people are put off by poetry and they say it directly to you. And so um, I feel like sometimes being a poet is an act of rebellion because so many people find it so incomprehensible and inaccessible and it freaks them out. Yeah, thanks for that. That's uh, like, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'd like to actually read that one again after hearing it. So yeah, thanks. How about uh, we'll kind of press a pause button here. We'll say goodbye for now, but not a real goodbye because we'll be back. Uh, momentarily, just to uh, to wrap up with uh, one additional question and uh, maybe some odds and ends. So uh, we'll conclude for now. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Rachel. Don't log off yet. Thanks for oh. having us, as always. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'll talk to you again soon.